loss. And uh, the account that we read, it's a, it's a remarkable account of uh, what happened to Jesus. And of course, it's because Mark wrote it after the event actually happened. But in our second passage that we had today, the passage from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he wrote that and he foretold it 700 years before the event of the suffering of Jesus and the cross. And it's absolutely amazing the detail that he gives and also the way that he speaks about the purpose of the suffering and the cross 700 years before it actually happened. It's really amazing and it should help to affirm our faith that God was already uh, telling us about his plan uh, long before it happened. If you um, are interested in archaeology and research, uh, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that were found at a place called Qumran back in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, among all the fragments and pieces that were found, there was a, an Isaiah scroll, a scroll of Isaiah, and it's been dated uh, to about 100 to 300 years before Christ. So it's a very, very old manuscript of Isaiah. So I'll just tell you that if you're interested in that kind of thing, go and have a research of it and uh, you'll really love looking into that. Now, from um, Isaiah, I just want to touch first on uh, three verses. And uh, as Derek said, uh, part of our text today is from chapter 52 and parts from chapter 53 of Isaiah. So from chapter 53, in verse 3, we read, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And in verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And from verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. We do call Good Friday Good Friday because the outcome for us is so good. And because of the outcome, we can rejoice and our hearts can be filled with joy. But nonetheless, there is also that element to today where we are filled with sadness and uh, we, we, we're sombre. Our services have that element uh, where we're sombre because it, we, we're looking back to see the suffering of Jesus. And whenever we look at that and whenever we spend time thinking about that and, and, and uh, contemplating it, uh, it, it brings with it that element of sadness. It, it's not something, well, I don't like to read the account. It's not something I enjoy reading. But, of course, it's something so necessary for us to read. Some of you uh, know, but some of you may not. Um, I work with the Presbyterian Inland Mission and uh, we go out to rural and remote places. So uh, much of my time is spent... Uh, travelling around in our rural areas, uh, visiting people. And uh, sometimes I go onto properties and there are um, lovely cottages, uh, you know, just small cottages, people uh, living in them who are just eking out a living. 
Uh, but some of these cottages are absolutely beautiful. You know, there's roses outside and climbing roses and geraniums and, and, and they just look absolutely lovely, probably calendar-worthy uh, pictures. But what I often find is that the scene inside the cottage doesn't always reflect the beauty that is outside of the cottage. And I'm not talking about the furniture or anything like that. I'm talking about the, the, the life of the people inside the cottage may not always be as beautiful as the almost perfect picture that we see outside. And then I go to properties, uh, you know, large properties where there are wealthy farmers and uh, they, they sometimes are living in, I suppose you would almost call them like the, the English mansions. And, uh, you know, it's stately, inspiring architecture, um, amazing lawns, manicured hedges, often tennis courts and, you know, absolutely beautiful. The type of uh, house and garden that you would put in a Home Beautiful magazine. But again, even though the outside may look almost immaculate, it's not always what I find on the inside. And again, I'm talking about the lives of the people because what I found inside in so many homes is drought. Now, you might be thinking, oh, hang on, Pastor, you've got this wrong. Drought's on the outside out in the paddocks. And of course it is. But what I'm talking about is spiritual drought. In so many of the homes I go into, I find uh, spiritual drought. Now, the farmers, of course, are concerned about outside whether there's drought or not, but sadly, there is so little interest in the God who provides the rain or provides the sunshine. The thinking's all about out there in the paddocks, but there is so little thought given to God and to spiritual things. And sadly, these people do not know the peril that they are in. But then on top of the whole spiritual aspect, there are other things that I find. Sometimes there are marriage problems or, or marriage breakups. There might be property disputes, day-to-day um, -day farming disputes as to how the farm should be managed, um, family relationship problems, substance abuse, uh, suicides, serious uh, accidents and sometimes fatal accidents, even in the time I've been, uh, the, just a few short years I've been out there, there have been fatal accidents. There are financial problems, illness, bereavement, loneliness and isolation. People who are suffering so terribly in themselves from things that have happened in their past. And I could go on and on. And I'm sure that we could say that probably the same is replicated in our cities as well. We might go for a walk, you know, an afternoon stroll through the suburbs and look at some beautiful houses and yards, but it's not always the same story inside of the houses. Now, I'm not saying that it's all bad all of the time. And I'm not saying that every problem I, I, I mentioned here is happening in every house all of the time. 
But nonetheless, there is so much sorrow and suffering in our world. And it entered the world as a result of sin and rebellion towards God. And it outworks in spiritual, emotional and physical suffering. And you may not see it on the outside, uh, but you have to look at what's happening on the inside of us. Even sometimes if people are in pain physically, you don't always see it, but it might be there. The spiritual suffering, the emotional suffering, we may not see it on the outside, but if we look below the surface, we see it's there. I, I love to look at boats. Um, I love to go down to you know, the, the wharf and wander around and have a look at the boats and peer inside and see what's inside. Um, often when the family says, oh, what should we do? I'll say, let's go down the wharf. And they never want to come. <laughs> it's very disappointing. Many years ago, my brother took me to the slip yard, you know, at the domain uh, where, where the regatta grounds are. And uh, he, a friend of his was doing up this uh, quite a large boat on, and it was on the slips. And they'd done the outside and it was absolutely beautiful, gleaming and sparkling and just lovely. I was just so amazed by it and I couldn't wait to go below deck. And when I got below deck, I was so disappointed because the whole boat had been gutted and, and there were, you know, it was just dirt everywhere, oil, oil cans, dirty old rags. It was just absolutely so disappointing. So it looked great on the outside, but looked absolutely terrible inside. Well, you know, friends, that often our lives can look good on the outside. You know, we put in our good clothes. Uh, and, and, and above deck, we might be just fine. But how are we going below deck? How, how does it look below deck? And even as we sit here today, and I, I don't know a lot of you, and I don't even know what's going on, but it doesn't take much of a guess to think that uh, while we're here and looking good on the outside, there's probably a whole lot of suffering and sadness and sorrow and challenges and trials that are going on below deck, the things that we can't see, but you're sitting there and you know uh, that it's happening in your life. Now, the question remains for us, how does God meet us in all of that sorrow and suffering that is going on in our life? How, how does God uh, come to us in a sense? And I know some agnostics, you know, people who believe that, oh, there's a, there's a God or there may be a God, but they think that he doesn't care for our suffering. He's just not interested in us. But the Bible tells us another story. The Bible says that God does care. History is his story. And our life is intertwined with God and his story. But the question is, how does God care for our sorrow and our suffering? How does God meet us? If God doesn't meet us, what are we doing here today? There's no point, is there? God needs to meet us in our sorrow and our suffering. Well, a couple of things, that, the, the way that God doesn't do it. I don't believe God is a good Aussie because he doesn't say to us, oh, she'll be right, mate. Because the reality is she won't be right. <laughs> you know, just because we say that, 
It's all, all this sort of flippant thing that we say, isn't it? Ah, oh, she'll be right, mate. Don't worry about it. She'll be right. But the reality is that just because you say that, it doesn't mean it will be right. God doesn't advocate just having a mere um, positive uh, thinking or positive approach to life. Not that that's bad, but it's just not the answer because it doesn't address our spiritual condition, it doesn't address our spiritual need, and problems still come our way. Another thing God doesn't do, God doesn't heap on good things to try and outweigh the bad things because the bad things, the sorrow, the suffering, all the circumstances of life, they are still there. Sin and the consequence of sin doesn't go away just because God might pour on us a whole lot of goodies in our life to make us feel better. It's a bit like having a person, they're terminally ill, they're going to die in a month's time and we say, oh, don't you worry, we, we know you like chocolates, we're just going to give you lots and lots of boxes of chocolates. Is that going to help? No, they're not going to feel better. Is it going to stop them dying? No, they're still going to die. You know, we, we might say, oh, we're going to give you lots of money or we know that you like travelling, let's give you lots of travel vouchers. But that's not going to help. It's not going to take away the problem. And, and it's the same for us. You know, if we're living our life just expecting God, and, and, and some Christians, I believe, live like this, you know, we're just saying, oh, God, just give me goodies, make me happy. You know, just pile on the material blessing, just give me more and give me more. And, 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 you know, that's going to make me happy. But it doesn't take away the trials of life and it doesn't deal with our sin and it doesn't deal with our sorrow and our suffering. As I'm driving around, because I do a lot of driving, uh, I listen to um, sermons and, and podcasts and so on. And I was listening to a, a speaker with the Gospel Coalition and in his sermon he mentioned this survey that was done in the United States. And he, he said that 90% of people in this survey, 90% of non-believers in the survey answered this uh, to the question, what is the main goal in life? They said the main goal in life is to enjoy yourself. That was the main goal in life, to enjoy yourself. Then they surveyed Christians and in the survey... 70% of the Christians said the same, that the main goal in life is to enjoy yourself. I was shocked when I heard that. I thought, surely not. Surely Christians are not going to say that's the main goal uh, in life. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? You know, for Christians who, who think the main goal in life is to enjoy yourself, what are they wanting of God? Are they wanting God just to pile on a whole lot of goodies so that they can enjoy life? But you see, it doesn't take away our sin. It doesn't take away our illness. It doesn't take away our selfishness. Probably it adds to it. Um, and it doesn't take away life's difficult trials. And it doesn't take away our sorrow and our suffering. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a whole lot of questions and then it answers them. The very first question in the Catechism says this, 
what is the chief end of man? Or what is the main purpose of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, we are meant to live a God-centred life, not a goody-centred life, not just a happiness-seeking kind of a life. And we're not meant to just sort of adopt some whimsical approach to life, like just having a positive or a she'll-be-right attitude. But the question still remains for us. How does God meet us in our sorrow and suffering and our sin so that we can glorify him and enjoy him forever? Well, let's have a look again at this text in Isaiah. And I want to touch again on those verses I mentioned at the start. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. How does God meet our sorrow and suffering? God has met our sorrow and suffering through the sorrow and suffering of Jesus. The suffering before and on the cross was so bad. In chapter 52, verse 14, Isaiah prophesied, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness. Jesus suffered physically so much that he was unrecognisable. They struck him over and over. They put a crown of thorns on him. They scourged him and then the nails. And because there are little is here today, I'm not going to go into any graphic account of the cross and everything that happened and before that. It's something that you can look into yourself. But what Isaiah says there is that it was so bad that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. God has met our sorrow and suffering through the sorrow and suffering of Jesus. Not a senseless piling on of goodies or not a she'll-be-right attitude. Nothing so shallow. But God meets us in the depth of our suffering through the depths of Jesus' suffering. In chapter 53, verse 2, Isaiah tells us, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What Isaiah is saying there is that Jesus, the man Jesus, there was nothing special about him in his looks. He was just ordinary uh, looking. No one would look at him and, and think, oh, we want to follow him. He, he just appeared like a, an ordinary man. There was no natural physical attraction to him and, and so there was no desire for him in that way. And how true it is for so many people today. The story of Jesus has no appeal. 
People have no desire for it. Nothing to see here, they say. So Easter time is all about chocolates and bunnies and taking the caravan to the coast. Nothing to see here in this story, nothing to see in this this Jesus story. How sad it is. And in chapter 53 and verse 6 we read, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's the condition of humankind. But of course that changes when we come to Jesus. But will you be a wandering sheep? Or will you belong to the family of God? Will you belong to Jesus? When I was driving around out in the bush, I know I tell a lot of bush stories, but that's a big part of my life where I find myself. Um, One day I was driving along on a really remote gravel road and a sheep had got out of the paddock and it was running along the road, especially in front of the car. And then it sort of went to the edge of the road, lost its balance and fell down this quite a a large embankment and got caught up between the the farm fence at the bottom and, and the embankment upside down and it was wedged there and couldn't move. Well, I, I, I saw this happen, so I pulled up and I, I thought, I can't leave it here because um, probably, well, no car would see it. If they didn't know the sheep was there, they wouldn't be looking. And the farmer may well not see the sheep. And if I don't rescue that sheep, it's going to die. So anyway, I scrambled down this steep embankment. I managed, it was this huge sheep, just covered in wool. But I struggled for about five minutes. Eventually, I managed to get it out and it got up on its feet and was able to scramble up. But I was thinking, what a silly sheep. Because look, there's all your sisters, uh, maybe some brothers as well, over there in the paddock eating grass and they're all happy. And why did you come out of the paddock? Why did you stray? Do you not know the peril you were in? Get back into the paddock. But are we going to be like a wandering sheep out of God's pasture, away from the cross and the message of the cross? Are we going to be away from Jesus and just some some wandering sheep? Because if we are, we are in, in grave peril of spiritual death and an eternity spent out of the paddock, out of God's family, out of the blessing of his pasture. There's a guy called uh, Pete Wynn. I just came across his story, so I really have got no idea who Pete Wynn is. But anyway, it sounds like a good story. It's a true story, though. And he, he recounts this. It's probably a few Christmases ago. He said, just prior to Christmas... I went to the post office. After helping me, the pleasant postal clerk uttered what is surely her standard line, is there anything else I can do for you? I quipped, can you help me pay for Christmas? Without missing a beat, she replied, he has already paid it. And and Pete makes his statement that a simple phrase had put everything in perspective. And our suffering and our trials are put into perspective when we look to the cross. 
You see, at those times when I might personally be suffering in life and going through all these kind of things and I, I might even be angry with God. Am I allowed to say that? But, you know, sometimes maybe we are a bit, aren't we, in our times of suffering and we, we say, it's not fair, God. I don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening to me? In those times, I look to the cross and I remember that Jesus suffered so much for me. And I might not understand my suffering right now. I might not understand what's going on. I might not be able to make any sense of it. But through the cross, through Jesus' suffering, I know that God cares for me. And we always need to point to the cross. In times when we are suffering, always point yourself to the cross. When other people are suffering, as far as we are able, always point them to the cross because God has met us in our sorrow and suffering through the sorrow and suffering of Jesus. Don't say to people when they're suffering, oh, she'll be right, mate. Don't say to them, oh, just pull up your socks, get your act together, think positively. Don't say that. Don't say, oh, you should just have more faith. Just trust God for more goodies. Just trust God to pile on the, 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 the fun things to make your life better. Let's not say that. Because all those things, sin doesn't go away. The trials of life don't go away. But God meets us in the cross and in our sorrow and in our suffering and in our sin. The only answer and the only way that God can meet us is through the sorrow and suffering of Jesus. This is so vital for us. So meaningful because it is our sin and our sorrow and our suffering that Jesus has taken upon himself. Can you understand it, friends, that, that when, when people are going through sorrow and suffering, there's no other answer and, and we can't often explain it. We don't know why they're going through that. But the only thing that we can do is point them to the fact and say, I can see what you're going through, but Jesus suffered for you. He died for you. I don't understand your suffering, but, but look to Jesus and find him. Find comfort in his sorrow and his suffering because in his love he did that for you. We read 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, for the transgression of my people he was punished. And verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. Jesus went through horrific physical suffering 
Jesus was pierced and crushed and marred beyond recognition because of the wrath we deserve. But Jesus also went through horrific spiritual suffering as well because he bore our sin. And he bore the punishment and the wrath of God that we deserve. And he was forsaken by the Father. He cried out at the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not because Jesus didn't really know. He knew what was going on, but it was just the cry of of his heart. You, You know, just that emotional, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the ultimate punishment to be separated from God. And the very sad thing in life, and I see it all the time with people, and I'm so sad about it and frustrated, and you would be too, is that ultimately what God's going to say to so many people is um, he's going to say, well, you wanted to live your whole life without me. Separated from me. You don't want to know about me. You're not interested in me. You want to live separate. You want to be the the God of your own life. You want to be the master of your own destiny. And finally God will say, okay, you can have what you have asked for. And you can spend eternity without me. In in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, he he came, you know, there was James, John and and Peter and they, they kept going to sleep while Jesus was there praying. And Jesus came to them and he said, this is amazing, friends, he said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I don't believe that Jesus here was talking about the physical suffering as horrendous as it may be. Because if he was, he would have said, we would expect something more like, I'm terrified, you know, about what awaits me. But it wasn't the terror of the physical punishment, though obviously that was in Jesus' mind. He was a human being. But but he says this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Because suddenly the hour had come and even though Jesus had known all the way along that this was coming, but now the hour was upon him when he would bear the sin of the world. And he would bear the punishment that we deserve. And he would take upon himself the wrath that we deserve. And God would forsake him there upon the cross. And as much as I try and think about that, I just cannot get my thinking around the spiritual cost that Jesus went through. I I read, I sort of get it, but what it really cost Jesus, what he went through, 
in that spiritual suffering on the cross. I just don't don't even begin to understand the gravity of that and neither do the wise people, the great Bible commentators because none of them can explain it. They touch on it. They know it's what happened but no one can explain the, 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 the spiritual suffering that Jesus went through uh, upon the cross and he did it for us. He met our sorrow with his sorrow because he didn't have to have sorrow. He was there happily in heaven. Perfect. Almighty. Sovereign God. But he came to this world and he suffered that sorrow because he was taking upon himself our sorrow. Chapter uh, 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Oh, look, when we hear that, does it not make us want to confess our sin? Does it not make us want to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to God? That's what repentance means. It's a literal turning around. It's, it's turning from our life of sin and actually turning around and turning to God and saying, God, I want to live for you. When, when we understand this, when we look at this, doesn't it make us want to receive Jesus, to receive the forgiveness and the righteousness that he offers us because he bore our sin. He bore our punishment. He bore our sorrow. He bore our suffering. Doesn't it make us want to be free of guilt? The guilt of our sin? Doesn't it make us want to enter into that eternal relationship with God? And you see, all the positive attitudes in the world, that won't achieve it. All the goodies that we might go after, that won't achieve anything. Trying to actually work for our salvation, that doesn't even come close to, to what we're hearing about here. We can't possibly work for our salvation and we can't do what Jesus did. We deserve death, Jesus didn't. He suffered on our part. All these things, we can only find them in the suffering and sorrow of Jesus. We can only find these answers on the cross. And verse 5 again, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And friends, this is why we call it Good Friday. Not because of what it costs Jesus. That's horrific. But because of what Jesus has won for us. What he gives to us. He offers it to us. If we would just take a hold of it by faith and believe it and receive it into our heart. By his wounds we are healed. Or you could say by his wounds we are made whole. We are spiritually alive. We are forgiven. We're in a relationship with God. We have the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness has become our righteousness. Jesus' right standing with the Father has become now our right standing 
with God. It's no longer our sin that God sees. When he looks upon us, it is Jesus who he sees, the perfect Jesus, the sinless Jesus. That is who he sees once we put our faith and our trust in him. We've been given peace with God, inner joy. We have the Holy Spirit and the Bible, God's word, to guide our life and also to guide us through our death. We have identity in Christ. People struggle with identity, finding out you know, where, where they belong in life, finding out whether they're important or not, or, or struggling, can I say it, with all the demons going on you know, uh, that, that, that we talk about. Struggling with those things, but we have identity in Christ. It's a whole other sermon. But we have worthiness in him. We have purpose in him. And we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, God, who is changing our character to make us more like Jesus, to put love and faith and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control into our life. We have somebody working on our behalf to change us, to make us better. The motto of the whole world is live for yourself, do everything for yourself, look after self. But we have a God who is at work trying to make us better. He's sold out to it. That's why Jesus came. And we have an eternal life with no sin and no sorrow and no suffering. I'll just finish with a little story. A Scottish botanist lay flat on his stomach in a meadow. He was looking through his magnifying glass at a common heatherbell, little flower, and he seemed to be oblivious of the shepherd near him until the shepherd's shadow announced his presence. Looking up, the botanist said to the shepherd, take a look at this. The rugged shepherd, for the first time, saw the heatherbell magnified in all of its intricate beauty and marvellous design. As he continued to look, tears began to trickle down his weather-beaten face. Regaining his composure, he said to the botanist, and just to think, I have been trampling these beneath my rough feet all these years and I just didn't know what beauty lay here. May we not trample upon Jesus and the Easter message of the cross and the resurrection. May we not neglect it. May we not trample upon it by neglecting it. For if we do, we will miss the intricate beauty and marvellous design of God's answer for our sorrow and suffering. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may our eyes truly be open to the wonders of the cross. May the suffering of Jesus free us from our sin as we believe in him. As we turn from sin to you, O oh Lord, may our sorrow and suffering find true perspective in the sorrow and suffering of Jesus, 
that we see and understand your great plan of redemption. May we live each day in appreciation of the spiritual blessings you lavish upon us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.